0: Welcome to Fueling the Revenue Engine. My name is Ross Greenfield, co-founder and chief enablement officer at Level 213. This podcast was created as a response to requests that we've gotten from the enablement community looking for resources to support them as they navigate this evolving landscape of enablement. As we look to the future of our profession, we believe that this is a great time to connect with other enablement leaders for discussions that take a closer look at relevant enablement topics. It's our hope that this podcast provides insight, guidance, and support to the go-to-market enablement and sales leadership community during both prosperous and challenging times alike. We're coming to you from San Francisco, California, where we are in the middle of figuring out what the impact of the coronavirus will be now and in the long term. For the immediate future, we are still under a shelter-in-place order here, which means that we're using conferencing technology instead of studio sessions to put this podcast together. As such, please excuse any fluctuations in our audio. Today, we welcome our guest, Melissa Maddian. Melissa is the founder and chief fabulous officer of TMM Enablement Services, which is probably the most fabulous title I've ever heard, and I love that already. She was one of the first people to pioneer sales enablement role in B2B and has spent the last 25 years perfecting the sales experience for revenue-generating teams. Melissa recently published a book on sales enablement called Enabler, I hardly know her, how to make the sales experience not suck. She also has a children's book uh, called It Came From the Science Lab and all profits from that book go to STEM charities. And towards the end of this podcast, we will tell you where you can find all her books. The enablement community was starving for a good enablement book. And I'll be honest, when I saw that Melissa wrote her book, I knew that we finally had the book that we needed for enablement even before I even read it. I've read it now and I'm sure of it, uh, but I just knew just knowing Melissa and the work that she's done, that it's going to be the book that we need. So real excited today to talk with Melissa about her book and all things enablement. Uh, We're going to be geeking out and I think you're going to pick up on her passion and her knowledge. I'm really excited for every want to learn from her. So welcome, Melissa. How are things where you are? Before we kind of dig into the, the wonderful book that you've written.
1: I'm doing great, Rod. It's great to be with you. I am joining you from a slightly sunny, mostly snowy Toronto, Canada. We had our first snowfall a few days back, but I'm all right. I mean, I wouldn't live in Canada if I didn't <laughs> enjoy snow, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, as a New Yorker living in, in San Francisco for many years, now I'm like, what is snow? <laughs> but I should remember. Uh, but but thank you, thank you uh, for taking the time to talk about it. So as I started, I said, I was so excited to see your, your book hit the presses and, and I knew that it was going to be a really good, fun and informative book. And, and I think the fun part of it is what I knew it was going to get me to go, huh, but it was also going to get me to chuckle a little bit. But I'd love to hear from you. Why did you write this book? And what was your approach when you were
1: writing the book? Uh, the idea for the book have, has been rattling around in my brain for a few years. Uh, I've been in sales and enablement for a really long time. So I thought, you know, it just makes sense for me to capture all of my experiences on paper. Uh, It's just that, you know, the day job gets in the way, essentially. Uh, So I had written, you know, a a little blurb here, a little blurb there, but didn't really focus until, uh, ironically, the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the pandemic hit, you know, everything went into lockdown, businesses basically came to a screeching halt. Uh, I suppose the upside to that was uh, I had time. Yeah. And uh, and I could actually go, you know, instead of, you know, cleaning the house for the 50th time or, you know, trying to figure out how we can downsize even more, I'm like, why don't I actually, you know, sit down properly and write this book? Uh, once I focused my energy and, and started to write it, then then it all just sort of flowed naturally. And and that's the book that, uh, that's out there today.
0: And, you know, it's interesting how, it, uh, you know, COVID or this pandemic, there was so much that Made our lives halt, but then there were things like what you did, like the ingenuity that happens, the things that we would never have really gotten done, and 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 thinking about all the things that 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 we now have access to because of what we needed to to shift in our lives is always, is a very interesting way to look at it, especially as we look back as we're you know nine or ten months into it, and and in a year or two as as life goes back to whatever normal means anymore, what what was the good that came out of this time? So I love that you know we got a really good enablement book out out, out of it, and and to be honest, I get. Asked very often, over the you know being in the space for a long time, for, to, uh, to recommend a good book, and I always felt up until this point that I had to give a disclaimer on the books that I was recommending, and I would say things like, "Well, you know, this is not my favorite book, but you, know, you can take you know this out of this book and that out of that book," and I would give them uh, and 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 just kind of let them know that you know the the market has shifted so much, and so the books might be a little bit outdated, and and, and these disclaimers like that. So for me, yeah, I think the feeling is that there are other enablement books out there, but my question is to you: Is why this book over other enablement books? Like, what do you, in your head, think that you know we now have that we didn't have beforehand?
1: Uh, well, selfishly, it's written by me, so I think of it's course. amazing. Yes, um, <laughs> and of, you know what? I'm right and there of with course, you. <laughs> of course, why wouldn't if people want to read a book written by me? Uh, but not so selfishly, I'll say that for me, this this was having read some of the enablement books out there. Um, there wasn't anything that really distilled it down to its simplest form. And, you know, I'm an engineer by background. So to me, it's like, you know, get to the root cause of things, get to the Mm. root uh, point of things. And and you don't need to have a lot of fluffy language around it or sound too quote unquote businessy. And I personally, uh, I don't enjoy reading you know, quote unquote business books uh, because they're too dry. It's, you know, I don't know if authors feel like they have to be serious because it's a business book. So, so it has to, you know, have a tone of seriousness. I don't take myself that seriously. So for me, I was like, I'm just going to, you know, download everything that's in my brain about enablement into a book, but I'm going to do it in the only way I know how, which is Bit self-deprecating, certainly not taking anything too seriously so that when somebody reads it, they actually enjoy the read instead of feeling like, oh, I'm reading a business book. You know, my intent was this is the kind of book that anyone at any level of enablement or even just sellers or folks who are in customer experience can pick up or sales operations can pick up and read. You know, having a, you know, nice cup of tea or a coffee or hey a glass of wine and just read this book and enjoy it, even if you're not necessarily familiar with the subject matter.
0: Yeah. And I think you accomplish that because first of all, you definitely chuckle a lot through it. There's a lot of humor in it and it's, and you know, we, we, we say a lot, like, especially if, you know, we, we work a lot with tech companies, like everyone thinks they're changing the world, but like, really, are we curing cancer Are we curing COVID? We're really not. You know what I mean? And, and so, but because you're not taking it too seriously, you're able to say, okay, but then how do we make the impact that we want to make? And let's, let's simplify it. But also I can see, my life in it because I can relate to it because it's, it's stripping out all this other like fluffiness or stuffiness or the the one problem that, that I think is the most important thing, but rather being, okay, now let's, let's kind of go back to the core and what are you trying to accomplish? And I, and I, I really am interested in what you said, you know, your audience, because I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, this is a great book for a sales leader to read. This is a great book for a sales person to read, not just an enablement person. This is a great per- great book for a PMM to read. And you've kind of touched on a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little bit more. Like who is the target audience for the book? And and if there are multiple, like what are you hoping that they get out of it if they're coming at it from different perspectives and different lenses? Uh,
1: it's interesting because I I didn't write the book from the standpoint of who's the target audience. I wrote the book from the standpoint of if I'm a human being and I randomly find this book somewhere, would I enjoy reading it, even if I knew nothing about the subject matter? Mm -hmm. And, and so now, because I do know the subject matter for me, the, the target audience would be, you know, if you're in enablement, you should read the book because it's, it's absolutely going to give you the tools and the techniques that, that you would need and some best practices around what will make you successful. But like you said, Roz, somebody who's the head of sales could read this book. Someone who's in in sales ops could read this book. Someone who's just interested in creating some foundationally important processes and, techniques whether they're in a customer facing role or not would find the book interesting uh you know my my husband I made my husband read the book mm-hmm. because I wanted his just input from an outsider his he's a screenwriter he's completely outside of out of the uh, tech space and outside of sales enablement and he said it's just an entertaining book mm-hmm. and he goes actually what he said is now I understand what you really do <laughs> so, I love that <laughs> so that's one one bonus point there but yeah. um it's really just intended for a human being to pick it up and read it and maybe get some interesting tips and tricks that that they can then take into their job, whatever their job might be.
0: You know, I love what, uh, what you're saying there because I keep thinking enablement means so many different things to so many different people and very often people don't understand what we do. I, I had an experience recently where I had met these two women Um, in uh, I was traveling and one was a beekeeper and one was like a Tulane University researcher. We, we ended up having a drink together and, and, and we were kind of going around like, what do you all you do? And I understood exactly what the beekeeper did and so did the other woman in the conversation. The research Researcher talked about what she did and, and very impressive work, and we all understand it. And then I tried to explain what I do, and the researcher said, "Can you say that in like people talk?" And I was just like, "I don't know how to describe what I do." And so having uh, you know you, people be able to read this and and th- you know taking it to if people in the organizations don't understand. What enablement is and what enablement can do, then then they're not going to put enablement in place in the right way, or do they right. have a, a a very specific understanding of what enablement? Is? It's interesting because when often when people uh, call me about enablement, I'm sure you experience something similar, and I think, all right, this person is fifty years old and sold twenty years ago. That's what he thinks enablement like he thinks enablement right. is versus this person is you know is working for a more modern company they think enablement is b and the truth is we know that it's so encompassing you kind of pick that up in your book it's you you, you kind of lay it out the a to z then the, the complete plan the complete uh, playbook which you can kind of get a sense of oh okay enablement is so much more all-encompassing and has so much more of an arc than than what we originally thought which i think would uh, i think it shocks people how many moving parts and and how many um different aspects that enablement really impacts so Knowing all that, what were some of the main themes that you cover in the book, and why did you choose those themes?
1: Yeah, to me, I didn't want to make the book just about enablement. I wanted to to make the book about how enablement actually affects the experience that buyers have with you, uh, which is one of the reasons why the title is the way it is. You know, it's not just about enablement; it's about making the sales experience a really good one for any customer, whether they're a net new customer or whether you're in customer success trying to keep and grow your customer base. And to me, enablement really needs to start thinking that way. Uh, I think that's why the term revenue enablement is starting to come up because it's not just about new sales. It's about yeah. all customer interactions that could potentially grow, uh, grow a customer base. Uh, so to me, that, that's sort of thematically the, the big overarching theme of the book uh, and then I dive down a little bit and drill into, you know, what what does sales care about? And as a function that is there to empower your sales organization or your revenue generating organization, how do you just make it really easy for them to do their jobs? And it's not rocket science, uh, but I feel like Enabler's think sometimes that, you know, they got to do all the things mm. instead of really thinking from the perspective of the the target audience which are your revenue generating functions and all the target re- audience really cares about is what am i selling? <laughs> what do i sell? how do i sell this? how do i sell it quickly? how do i sell lots of it? and uh, so the book kind of touches on those themes of, you know, create a really great experience by making sure the people who are responsible for creating, keeping, and growing the customer base know exactly what they need to do and how they need to do it. So it just makes it easy for them to to do their jobs effectively.
0: Yeah. And I love that you started with the customer, right? Because at the end of the day, if you don't have the customer, there's nobody there's no revenue generating team or there's no revenue yeah. team And then okay, so if we start with the customer, then back out and say, what does the sellers need to or the or the revenue generating teams or the go to market teams even if we look at it from what do they need and how do we how do we make it easier for them to service our customers, then the customers come along with you. The other thing that you said that I that I think is so important and, and we can say it and then just stop this conversation because if people get that then they get everything is you don't have to do all the things, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's less is is more In a lot of ways too, and you know we're we're recording this during Q4, and my big thing in Q4 is get out of the way and let the seller sell. Like just let them do the job. Like that's it. Like you've done your enablement, and yes, in Q1 do a big kickoff and all that. But right now, just get out of the way. So one question that I know a lot of leaders have. So taking this perspective of the person reading the book being somebody who might not be a sales leader or even a salesperson, maybe you know the CEO of an organization that has that has to bring in enablement or the product leader who's created the product who who needs sellers to sell it. And the question that, that I think comes up for them a lot is, can sales skills be taught? And if we, they can be taught, can you get a good salesperson to be a great salesperson through enablement? And if so, how? So I'm really curious from your experience and from some of the things that you've included in the book, how would you answer that question to somebody who might not necessarily understand how to skill up a salesperson and, and how enabling could help that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because to me, uh, you know, I often hear from sales leaders, oh, they're a born salesperson, they're a natural salesperson. And I often think like, what do they mean by that? Is it just they're, they've they got an extroverted personality and, and that's, quote unquote, what a good salesperson or a great salesperson is? And I, and I think that's kind of a, a, a fallacy. It's, you know, it, it doesn't, just because somebody has got a great personality doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna be a great salesperson. Yep. Uh, so the, sh- the short answer to your question is, I think sales skills can absolutely be taught just like any skill could be taught. You know, You know, playing a musical instrument um, some folks have just natural musical ability, uh, but, you know, you can teach somebody who's never played an instrument before. You can teach them to play the instrument. They might not be really great at it, but you can teach them how to do it. Yeah. Um, so so if you do have people who are good salespeople, you can teach them to be great salespeople if they are willing to do to become a great salesperson. So a lot, a lot of somebody going from good to great is just the will to do it and the steps to get them there. Mm. So, um, I think enablement is in a really good position to take a look at what does make a salesperson great at the organization I'm at, because it'll be different organization, organization, you know, small organization has a different makeup of what a great salesperson would look like than a large corporate organization. You know, I've worked at small startups and a really fantastic salesperson at a small startup has a different set of behaviors and process adherence and skills than a salesperson at a large corporation. There's just a, a different way of doing business at those things. So enablement is in a good position to sort of take a look at what, what does great look like and how do we get the people that we have in place to become great? What skills do we need to put into place? What processes do we need to put in place? And what behaviors do they need to exhibit in order to become great?
0: Yeah. And I love how in the book, you know, you talked about uh, not assuming that there's one blueprint for every you know type of organization. And you talk about and I think I think I know the acquisition that you're referring to. I went through something yep. similar where, you know, somebody who's a very, very successful at a startup, um, agile, uh, you know, culture where you could where you could experiment and then goes into a very, very large organization is the same person and went from being a fantastic salesperson to a shitty salesperson or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's the same thing for enablement, right? Just because you did and you know, I've done enablement at, at, as you have at startups, at midsize, at very, very large, and it, you can't, it's not the same thing, right? You, you can learn from one for the other, but what, what I think the question that, that the salesperson has to ask, the sales leader has to ask, the sales enablement person has to ask is what is success at this company and what characteristics and attributes do we need? And just because you did very, very well at a, at a, at a scrappy startup doesn't mean you're going to do very, very, very well well with a lot of structure and vice versa. I've interviewed these uh, people as salespeople who did really, really well under an Oracle or a Salesforce or an Adobe that had a tremendous amount of infrastructure on them. And then they come to a startup and they're like, well, who's my, you know, fill in the blank uh, expert. And you're like, you, <laughs> you know, right. You have to be, that, that, so you have to be able to wear a lot of hats. And so I think I love, and I, and I really highly recommend everybody, you know, read that uh, that part of the book, and, and really ask yourself what is going to make somebody successful at in this organization, in the stage that we're in, and it may change mm-hmm. as the, as we grow. And then build the support and the enablement around that. And, and to your point on the skills being taught, when you know you use the example of like uh, somebody learning to play piano, what I also thought of when you said that was. And then the person that is the professional piano uh, player probably has a coach, right? They're not resting on their laurels because they want to go, they want to become A+. plus.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the example I use in the book is Serena Williams, who is arguably yeah. the, the best tennis player of all time. And she has a coach yeah. uh, because because she knows that there are younger people coming up the ranks that could beat her. So um, how how do you make sure that you continue to get better And continue to be the best. Well, you need a coach to do that. And anyone's in a great position to be that coach.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm thinking back to conversations that I've had with people that who are now sales leaders, but came up in a time when they had to figure things out themselves, and you know they learned how to sell through the school of hard knocks, and they didn't have enablement, and they very often don't understand why is enablement even important. Why are you taking my people off the off the floor to train them? Why are you making them read this resource? And 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 maybe even having these kind of conversations could help them to realize just because you came up from the school of hard knocks doesn't mean that you had everything that you needed. Because you know, to your example with like Serena Williams, like Mm -hmm. she's. Still going out and practicing and working with somebody and, and, and probably looking back at her, at her game and, you know, dissecting it. And, and yes, did she, could she be a great player without that? Sure. But will she have all the medals that she has today? Maybe not, right? Right. Really insightful, and I really like the way you kind of broke it down and made it really simple to look at where we are, where you are, and what is needed there, and then um, adjust accordingly, um, which may be different size of company, size of person, and and interesting that you say like oh, I just know they're a natural burn salesperson. My experience has been very often is they sell like that person that said that, but Mm -hmm. that's assuming that there's one way to sell, right? And and you have to learn that there's several ways. The next thing that I really wanted to kind of dig into is, you know, we we work a lot with tech companies and I think a lot of tech companies struggle with, you know, we love our products. That's why we're selling this products. We love the bells and whistles. We're very proud of it. There's a lot of product people that think the product just sells themselves. The truth is the buyer it's not what the buyer's really buying. The buyer's not really buying our bells and whistles, they're buying our solution. And so I think a lot of times companies, um, starting from from product down, and very often tech companies are product leader led, down to the sellers. It's it. You get into this book a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little bit more. It's like, what is the best way to get the sellers and the company to be selling the solution and not their product?
1: It's tough because if you have started, and a lot of A lot of the smaller, especially SaaS organizations are founded on on product first, right? It's a couple of developers, they develop a great product and they manage to get to a stage on the merits of the product. So when you start to grow to a certain point, um, where there's competition and everything like that, selling on the product's not really going to work anymore because there's lots of other products that do these, the same thing. You're and if you're doing
0: your sales. product right, there's going to become competition, right? Because well, exactly, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah you're going to have competition, which means you're going to have to sell against them. But, yeah. you know, I've I, uh, there's, there's so much research out there from, you know, the serious decisions and, and the gardeners and all that sort of stuff that have done research on like, why do buyers buy? And, you know, right across the board, all these research firms find that buyers buy on the experience that they have with the salesperson. You know, did did the salesperson provide value? Did they make it easy for me to buy from them? Uh, but even, even if you don't pay attention to the research, um, I've been an executive buyer at various companies before I started my own consulting firm. And I never purchased based on the demo that I saw. Mm. Uh, I'm buying based on, are you solving a problem for me? And the demo is not going to show me that you solve a problem. Like you have to tell me that you're solving a problem, or you have to tell me that I have a problem that I need solving and, um, and how you are going to fix that. And I find that so many organizations, they it's like go to demo, go to demo, go to demo. They drive to demo. And it's like, your buyer's not buying on the demo. They're buying on, are you, sol- you going to make their lives easier? Really? Like, are you going to make my life easier by me putting in your product? Um, so I think it's, it's important. And I, I think the reason why um, organizations sell on product is because they're not really putting themselves in the head of the person buying from them. Mm. And when you take a look at why is this, this customer, this buyer, this persona, Why didn't, why are they buying from me? Like, why would they buy us over anybody else? And if they think of, okay, um, this person is going to solve this problem, fix this thing. This is going to make their lives easier. When they, when you start to think in that way, then you're not selling on product. You're actually selling on the solution. You're selling on the, you know, the, if I have to fix a hole in a table, um, you're not going to show me how sexy the the, the you what know, yeah. wood, wood is, yeah. or you know, the nails. Are. driver. yeah, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna sell me on the fact that you have all the things that will actually fix that hole in the table, like yeah. So I think the analogy,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Like the analogy I use in the book is produce. Um, it's you know, you're not gonna sell me on an orange and how you know the rind is a certain thickness mm. and you know the orange has you know x percentage of seeds to pulp. You're gonna sell me on the fact that hey. Um, you have a vitamin C deficiency and oranges will help that vitamin C deficiency. Like that's, you're, you're solving a problem for somebody. And And there's, the market is so saturated with stuff, you know, especially in the software as a service space, which is where I spend most of my time. It's, there's so many things, you know, selling on demo is not going to do it. You have to tell me why your platform is going to solve my problems because I have 15 other vendors attacking me, telling me that they've got, they've got wonderful products too.
0: Yeah, and, and and very often it's hard to differentiate for the buyer mm-hmm. between the, the different products. But I do know the problem that I have, and I, one of the things that, as you were talking, where you know, I think it's it's about like what is the problem you're really solving for the buyer. I'm remembering in your book. It, you you said a story about I think you, you your company was trying to figure. I've got the the exact details. I'm sure you probably remember. it. And you recommended that they that that they talk to the buyer, and they were like, mm-hmm. what?
1: What are you doing? yeah do you
0: remember that and can you share that yeah. story because it was so like yeah. oh my
1: god yeah it was like the the organization i was at uh, i was a salesperson at the time and so you know how do we how do we sell more how do we get you know reach everybody and and it's like well just pick up the phone and call people just call them call them call them i'm like well why don't we actually call our customers and find out why they bought from us and if we find out why they bought from us then it's going to be a lot easier for us to target other prospects that look just like them. And the sales leader looked at me like I had 17 heads and and was spinning fire. It was just, it was completely did not, does not compute. Um, And, and I thought they're so ridiculous. So when I did join an organization that did care about what customers thought, um, we went through that process of, you know, just asking customers, why do you buy from us? Why do you buy? How do you use us? What value do you get out of us? And we were actually able to, to distill the use cases down to like six use cases of why the majority of people come to us, what problems people are coming to us for that we solve for. Yeah. And um, and that just made our selling lives so much easier because we just focused on those problems.
0: Yeah. And I bet you the person didn't say, well, I bought you because your solution does x feature it was like no why you because we had this yeah problem. And yeah and it was interesting yeah. after i read that um and this is a good you know a good example of like this book is so good for people even have been doing it as long as i've been doing it is i was coaching the salesperson and he said to me i just read that and um he said to me well i really struggle with being able to talk about competitive differentiation. And I said to him, well, like, when was the last time you picked up the phone and, talk, and and spoke to someone that you've already sold to and asked them the difference between using your solution with the solution that you already had? And he's like, I should talk to a customer I already sold to? And he was just like,
1: <laughs> what? That's
0: not gonna help Sal. now. Like I'm trying to close business, Raza. You realize I'm not a CSM. And I was like, no, I realize that. I realize you're not a CSM, but realize you have information that you're missing and that person has it. So what if you ask them, take 30 minutes and ask them, hey, dude, you bought this, you know, six months ago. Why did you buy it? And 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 what did you benefit? And then use that information as you talk to new buyers. And he's like oh, I never would have thought of that. And I'm like, it's so simple, but we're like, yeah. that's not a revenue generating thing. You know, yes, it is.
1: Right. So yeah. it, it's actually, I would argue that it would make your revenue generation faster because, exactly. um, because once you find that familiarity of, oh, well, customer a had that problem, they solved it using us. And this prospect over here looks just like customer a, I'm going to talk to cu- uh, you know, this prospect over here about the similar problems and see if those are the challenges that they have. Cause if yeah. they do, Hey, we solve it. And here's a great
0: customer example of how yeah. we solved it. Cause we're solving, <laughs> but we're selling business solutions. We're not selling
1: business features. So yeah. yeah, I don't, I mean one widget versus another, nobody cares.
0: You know, and I also have a belief that I, I've been in situations where, you know, I sold a really good product and I sold really shitty products and the product has to do what it said it does, but it's not about how the product does it. We have yeah. to have the confidence that the product does it. So it's good. That you love your product and you believe in it, but really be thinking about from the buyer's perspective of what are they really getting out of it. So, in working with a lot of uh, uh, companies that let's say start off selling to one persona and then they add product or or they have they add a solution for a second persona. So for example, you know, they start off selling to marketers. Mark, their, their their solution provides a, 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 a really good solution to, to a marketer's problem. And they get really, really good at selling to marketers and, and getting marketers bought on. And then, and then they add on a product that also uh, supports developers and they can't for the life of them understand the developer persona. But then I work with another company, and they're a developer-first product, and they can sell it to developers like all day and all night, and then, and then they have to start selling to marketers, and they don't know how to talk to marketers. So I would really love your perspective from an enablement perspective. How? how what, is, what has been your experience with that, and how do we help? Why does this happen, and how can we help salespeople and product marketing people be able to be more of a chameleon and not get stuck when they when they are solving problems for different personas? Doesn't that question even make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it does make sense. And personas are an interesting beast because, you know, I appreciate the work marketers do around creating personas because they're trying to make it easy for say, sales reps to quickly identify a target buyer and pursue that buyer. The the problem that I see with a lot of personas which I think leads to the problem that you articulated is it forces people into categories mm. and people don't fit in the categories. <laughs> so like they really don't. People are messy and they're human and they they have different needs and wants and stuff. So it's important for organizations to identify uh, to identify who should be buying from them, whether it's marketers or developers. But once they identify, you know, here are the types of people who will use our product or service, then it's also important to identify why. Why would they use this product or service? Mm-hmm. And the role isn't going to necessarily make a difference, whether you're a developer or a marketer, you know, like the, the example you articulated, you know, They can sell to developers all day and all night, but not to marketers, probably because they've identified why the developers are using their product or service, and they haven't really clearly articulated why marketers would want to use the product or service they're selling. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of why it goes back to that. Why are people buying from us? Why are people using us? Mm -hmm. And if you can identify the why, then it becomes really easy to determine, okay, so if this is the use case, I mean, use case is really what I'm, what I'm getting at. The the why is the use case? If you can identify the use case, this is why people use us. Then, then you can put the lens of, if this is the use case, here's how a developer would use it. And here's how a marker would use it. And the use case is still the same. It's just the lens that you look at the use case changes based on the persona. And I think that's where people struggle. It's they think that the personas are these little buckets and they mm-hmm. never the two shell meet. Mm. And in reality, it's you're selling a platform of products or services that can be used in a finite number of ways. And based on who is using it, um, they'll care about different things. Uh, and that's that's what really the focus should be.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a theme in our entire conversation and it all goes back to the why, uh, the yeah. bomb, and, and here it's like, don't get so as cut up. And I think you're right. I think people get caught up in a marketer is this type of person and a developer is this kind of person and not what problem does the marketer have or what problems the developer have or even what problem does a company have mm-hmm. that the developer is working on or is that the, that the marketer is working on because everybody it all kind of you know rolls back up to something that's 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 happening at a, at a more of an organizational level so if you really go back to forget that you know developers tend to care you know th- think and care about one thing versus another and really think about what are they what, what are they trying to solve for? Just kind of to everything we said earlier, then yes, they happen to be developers and therefore they do X, but it's not, you don't want to come from the perspective of doing X first. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. yeah, that, that, that's, that's an interesting way to kind of think about it. Cause I think that salespeople, I think get so comfortable and sale and product marketing teams get so comfortable with having figured out that one problem solution to that problem that they forget to then go back and, and start with the beginner's mind again. And say, Mm -hmm. okay, let's go back to from the developer's perspective, let's say. Okay, I'm going to move on to my favorite analogy in your book that I will absolutely (laughs) steal. I'll give you the credit, but I will steal it, and that's your bouncer analogy. I love, love, love that analogy. So, when we, you know, we started off this conversation, or early in this conversation, we are talking about, you know, the that that sales enablement is all, all encompassing, and we do a lot of things. And one of the things, the real struggles for sales teams, is the amount of information and influence that other departments believe that they need to have on the selling team. And you know, uh, I think we were talking offline I had like, in Q4, you know, you get out of the way and let them sell. And and I think that that's a big part of what enabling exists to do is to, you know, get rid of the noise and um, allow sales team to, to to be productive. And so you talk about, you compare the enablement team to bouncers at a club uh, protecting the salespeople. So tell me a little bit more about that and how do we make that really work in the real world?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a uh, wonderful thing and it's a terrible thing that most organizations, they want to help their sellers sell. So, you know, your product marketing, your marketing teams, your customer success teams, they all feel like, oh, we're, we're just going to give sales all of the things and we need to get in front of sales because this is going to help them sell. We need to get this in front of sales because it's going to help them sell. The problem with that, like you said, is there's just too much noise at the sellers. And um, all of these organizations, all of these departments that are trying to help the sales team, they don't realize that. Um, them, uh, barking stuff at the sales team isn't going to help the sales team sell. Cause at the same time, like, um, uh, the, the day in the life of a seller, like I've, I've carried a quota I've sold before. Um, you have, you have to figure out everything that you have to figure out your target audience. Then you have to build your pipeline. Um, maybe you have the benefit of an SDR. So you got to meet with your sales development rep to build pipeline. Then you also have to, you know, do presentations, research the companies that you're targeting, um, you know, develop personalized approaches. You got to do these presentations. Maybe you got to do a demo. Maybe you got to go through like a proposal. You got to do negotiations. You got to do legal I mean, there's so much stuff a salesperson has to do. So all these other departments that are, you know, talking at the sales team saying, hey, I also have this and this can help this. They just don't understand. Like, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And you're... you're you're forcing the rep to filter and prioritize all of that information while they're also doing their day job, which is Mm -hmm. trying to close business and move deals through the pipeline. So your enablement team is in a really good position to be that buffer between all of the other parts of the organization, and the people who are trying to generate revenue for the organization. So the analogy I use in the book is, imagine all of your revenue generating functions are in a really super awesome, hot dance club. And your sales management team is your bouncer, basically the the large, burly person standing in front of the club preventing people or checking people who are coming in. And your other departments are the lineup of people trying to get into the club. And what the sales management team acting as that bouncer can do is say, I know what the situation is in the club right now. I know exactly what's going on in the club. I know who's in the club and I know what their state is. If you, let's say, you know, product marketing is in line at the club. If you product marketing um, have something important that matches what's going on in the club, then you're in and you can go into the club and, and you couldn't talk to them. Um, or maybe product marketing has something that matches what the, the the club goers need, but it's not in a format that is conducive to how sales needs to receive it. So the analogy I use is like, you can come into the club, but before you come into the club, you gotta change that shirt and you gotta get rid of those flip flops because this club has a dress code and that's what has to happen. So, um, because a lot of material that you know um, marketing or product marketing or uh, development or customer success develops, it's not, in an easily consumable format for sales to actually take and and take action on. Yeah. Um, so, so the sales management team can act as that buffer between yeah. everybody else and what's going on in the club so that the sales team gets exactly what they need when they need it in order to make themselves successful.
0: Yeah. And it might be like the theme on the club tonight is X and you're not fitting that theme, but if you come back next week, the yeah. theme, you will fit in the theme because, and that would be the difference between like Q4 and Q1. We're going to make very yeah. big, very different decisions as the bouncers um you know i was talking to to a client and they were like changing pricing i'm like you don't change pricing in q4 like what do you yeah, do it that's right like, bouncer. but no come back in q1 we'll let you change pricing right yeah. so the problem then becomes right so on that product marker or the legal team or the operations team i think that my thing is the most important thing what do you mean i'm not allowed onto the club like And if we take that club analogy, like I got dressed up in my best outfit and now you're telling me I'm not cute enough, right? So, how do you kind of help them to understand or explain to them like what they think is the most important thing to them is not the most important thing to the salespeople, maybe not right now?
1: Yeah. So, my, uh, the the pressure test I always use, uh, and they're actually individual chapters in the book is is what you have to sell, uh, what you have to say to the sales team isn't going to help them either understand more about who they are selling. Uh, to whom they are selling? Is it going to help them understand what they are selling and the value of what they are selling? Or is it going to help them sell faster, sell more, sell faster? And Mm. those are sort of the three tests. Can you say that one more time?
0: Because I think that's so important.
1: Yeah. So what, what am I selling? What, what Mm -hmm. is it that the salesperson has to sell? So is it going to tell them what they are selling or provide them more of what they can sell Mm -hmm. and the value that that provides? Is it um, going to tell me to whom I need to Mm. sell to? Is it going to improve that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or is it, and, or is it going to help me sell more, sell faster? Mm -hmm. And, and if the answer, if it, if whatever, you know, say legal has to provide to them doesn't fit into those buckets, then, then, you know, as an enablement person, you have to say, look, um, what you have might be Interesting. But it is not going to for, for this point in time, um, maybe for this quarter or for this week, um, this is just not going to fit into how sellers are selling right now. But you can come back <laughs> or, or we've put it in the queue for, you know, x amount of time from now because that makes it makes more sense for them to do that. Uh, mm. Or you, you can say, hey, it's not quite where it needs to be, but here, let me help you put this in a format that is going to be best consumed by sales and then we'll get it out to them. Mm,
0: yeah, at a time of that, it will make them sell faster and better and, yeah. and ultimately be, be more productive because- enablement exists and actually the company exists for salespeople to be able to be more productive and drive revenue. And so if we're kind of taking it from that lens and help them to understand that, um, and I actually think from their perspective too, if they want their initiative to be successful, but the salespeople don't have the bandwidth or the bread, you know, the, the, uh, headspace team and deal with it, then their sale, their initiative is going to fail also. So, kind of getting them to see it from that perspective, I think, might helpful. But I love, I love that the the benchmark that you're using there because it simplifies it, right? Which is, I think, what you do very well in general with enablement is just kind of simplify it. One last question I have is, you talk about which I think flows nicely from what you were just saying is, you, is you lay out a a structure for continued education of continued enablement and support of salespeople. And I think most tech companies understand the importance of a good new hire onboarding program, but we really struggle with this ongoing enablement. And you described this kind of like a monthly enablement cadence of like a 45 minute session every month, a quarterly and a yearly. So can, can you talk a little bit about that and how you've seen that work and then maybe how that ties in to what we were just saying before about all those things that do have to come to the salespeople, because, you know, sometimes you do need to update pricing or do need to update, you know, the, the legal process, but we have to be thoughtful on how we uh, provide that ongoing enablement.
1: Humans love consistency and and um, familiarity and, and repeating things. So uh, the a lot of challenge that I see, or a lot of things that I see happening at organizations is as soon as something comes up that, the organization thinks is valuable for sales, they just throw it at the sales team. Mm. And the problem with that is it's too random. Mm. And it's like random acts of sales enablement happening at the sales team. But when you set up a, a, a regular cadence for ongoing enablement, like monthly, uh, like quarterly, like yearly, maybe there's enough things going on in your organization, you need to do it every week or every other week. Um, although every week is a lot. So I would recommend monthly just to... for. To so just to ease the load on the sales team, when you set up that regular cadence and you also make sure that what is included in that communication or that interaction with the sales team is really valuable to the sales team, then the sales team knows, okay, every month we're going to get together for 45 minutes and I'm going to get a download of everything I need to know to help me sell for that month. Then they're more likely to show up. Because they're like, oh, I'm the the organization is just going to bug me for forty five minutes in a month, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm going to get everything I need to know, and it's going to be of value to me, and then I can take that and run with it. And then if there are incidental questions or if there's like high priority items, you can use you know bulletins or you know alerts or uh, impromptu meetings and stuff like that to to do that kind of thing. Like a company acquisition would be one that you probably don't want to wait for a monthly yeah. meeting. Yeah, but all the other stuff is usually fine delivered in a monthly cadence. And that way the sales team knows it's just going to happen this once, I'm not going to get interrupted and I'm going to get everything I need to know and I'm going to find out where I can go to get everything I need. And um, it's going to be
0: thoughtful and, and not just because it was the, the thought of the week.
1: Exactly. I, yeah. So, and and that way the sales team, you, you don't disrupt the sales team with random acts of enablement and they in turn... Uh, can commit the time because they're like you're You're not you're not throwing a bunch of different things at me the thought of the week you're actually thoughtfully um, making my life easier I love it and I and I really hope
0: that people uh start putting that into place because I think to your point there's too much right now um and 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 I think if you know taking this this global pandemic that we went through or that we're going through I think that forces that even more right um and 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 also being able to think a little bit more balance the agile with kind of like the standard and then then you look at you know your quarterly and I think we're going to see if, if companies stay more as, as the world starts opening up again and companies go to either a hybrid or more remote quarterly people bringing quarterly together is going to become even bigger and then obviously you know the yearly becomes even I think every one of these meetings become more meaningful because they become mm-hmm. a little bit more rare and special all right. One last very, very important question that I have for you um, is uh, that became clear in your book is that although we use the example of, of Serena Williams. You're not a sports person. I'm not a sports person. We live in a world that loves sports analogies. I salespeople, for whatever reason, use sports analogies all the time. I actually had a sales leader once say to me very, very seriously. He's like, I don't understand. How did you become so successful in sales when you know nothing about sports? So I want to ask you, why is that? And how can we get rid of this? Um, What what other analogies can people use? And how can we change that? It's not always, I have to, I have to often do research on a sport before I go in and do an enablement thing. So help me out here, my fellow not sports sales.
1: Oh my God. I do not do sports sports. And oh. it's, uh, it's so funny, too, because, you know, I live in Canada. So one of the first things that I usually get asked, you know, oh, you know, how's the the local, like, I don't even know what the local hockey team name, uh, the Maple <laughs> Leafs, I think. So it's like, you know, how are the Leafs or whatever? I'm like, that's hockey, right? <laughs> you know, the, the only, the only time I ever caught wind that, you know, sports existed was when the Raptors won whatever, Super Bowl or whatever the. Oh, I guess Raptors is football. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I what, no, I don't even know. Like ba- basketball, whatever the basketball trophy is. Oh, okay. yeah. Like completely clueless. So I, I don't know if it's because sales has been a historically male dominated field. So that's how, and then sports are historically quite male centric. And that's how all of these analogies came in. That's one possibility. Uh, although of course all of that is changing now sports there's there are just as many amazing female sports players and again like serena williams yeah i know her because well i actually know her because she's got fabulous fashion but (laughs) <laughs> um, you know she's See? she's arguably one of the best tennis players of all time, regardless of her, yeah. her gender. I just and, read a small box book, and I was like, "Oh, damn! She must have been a great player." And now
0: now I know who she is. Now but you I know I yeah. know her because of her leadership book, not because of her
1: yeah. soccer. I, and I think she sports because uh, sales can be perceived as a team. Um, team activity or team. So, you know, a team sport, quote unquote, a team sport. So it sort of lends itself to other things that tend to be team oriented, which are obviously sports. Um, The problem that I find is sports analogies and any sales leader I've ever worked with that wants to use sports analogies. I understand the need to have analogies because analogies help us understand things. They help us relate, you know, it's a very human thing, but you know sports analogies can potentially alienate anyone who doesn't appreciate sports <laughs> like mm-hmm. you and I as an example yep so yep. and and the last thing you want to do is alienate anyone in your audience and you certainly don't want to create friction especially if you know your sales organization is trying to encourage people of genders other than male. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say, and that's generalizing because not to say yeah, that. I, I have some female friends that love their sports. Love sports. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I've got lots of female friends that love sports as well. But in general, um, I try to choose analogies that are related to what I'm trying to get across but aren't necessarily rooted in cliches. So in the book, in the book, I use uh, food as an analogy because who doesn't love food? Yeah, and and, we all eat. And we all eat and I use music as an analogy because music is very non-gender specific. So um, I think as sales, any, any sales leaders that are listening right now, you know, really step back and think about if you're going to use analogies, like military analogies are another oh, popular one in sales. And I cannot stand those. I'm like yeah. to even remotely equate selling software to what military personnel go through is absolutely ludicrous. Right. There is yeah. no comparison. Like it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. You know, it's, we're not fighting wars here. We're just trying to sell stuff. So to me, it's like choose analogies that are are going to make the point but don't necessarily aren't, aren't necessarily overused. Cause I feel like sports and are way overused and also that are going to be uh, inclusive of everyone.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that there's another successful sales human out there that doesn't do sports either (laughs) because it could happen. So I love that. And if you're listening and you're not a sports person, we are your tribe. We're Uh, with you. We are with you. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was so um, incredibly insightful. And I think, you know, uh, it's reminding me of just like take it back to the core, take it back to the simplicity um, and take it back to the customer and what you're trying to solve for. So um, thank you for the time. We talked about you have two books, uh, this enablement book, um, Enabler. I hardly know her how to make the sales experience not suck and your uh, children's book.
1: Where do people find these books and where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. So it's just Melissa Maddian. You can find me. I'm the only one. You can find me on LinkedIn and all of my books are listed there, or you can go to my website, which is www.melissamadian.com. And uh, my books are all listed there as well, but certainly I, I encourage folks to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to make the connection just let me know. It's because you heard Roz and I uh, geek out about sales (laughs) enablement and that way I know you're not a LinkedIn robot or anything. (laughs) Yeah. And read her books. They're both fantastic.
0: Uh, Thank you, Melissa. Enjoy this as always. Keep up uh, the awesomeness that you're putting out there and help bounce, be the best bouncer for for our salespeople out there because we need that out there. We need people like you doing that. So
1: thank you for writing these
0: books and thanks for uh, joining us on this podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for the conversation, Roz. Always happy to chat with you.
0: As we close out this episode today, we would like to thank purpleplanet.com for our music production. And we thank you for listening. We encourage you to get in touch with us with requests for future topics, any questions you might have, or just to say hello. We can be found at www.level213.com. That's L-E-V-L and then the numbers 213.com or through LinkedIn. Have a great day.